Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. Once again, I'm on my own. My colleague, Paul Rickard, is still skiing in Europe, but I'm not jealous in any shape or form. It's just nice to be able to do The Switzer Show by myself. Anyway, he will be back next week and um, we look forward to seeing Paul when he gets back. But today's show, we have uh, Napoleon Pertus telling us what the hell happened to his business. And uh, it certainly has been a bit of a surprise. It's been a very successful operation, started around 1995. And uh, he reckons he's a victim of a lot of the, the problems for a lot of retailers out there. So we'll catch up with uh, Napoleon in a few minutes. Mark Heron, who's the executive director of Connective, and that's the biggest mortgage broken group in Australia. And the mortgage broken fraternity have really been rocked by the Royal Commission's recommendation to take away trailing commissions and make us pay mortgage brokers to find us really good loans. Um, Mark Heron actually, I think, will give you a really good understanding of what mortgage brokers actually do. And I think you'll make a pretty strong case for why these recommendations could easily be tweaked, not only by the government, but also by Labor. I really think Justice Hayne, who did a great job, I think, overall with the Royal Commission, really has screwed up when it comes to mortgage brokers. And finally, we'll talk to um, the founder of the Growth Faculty, Karen uh, Beatty, and she's bringing out a well-known uh, publisher, uh, a guy who wrote the book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, Patrick Lancioni. My pronunciation is probably uh, pretty bad, but still, it's an Italian name. Um, the book has sold about 11 million copies. Um, he's coming out to Australia, um, and we'll catch up with Karen to see what he's going to be talking about and why you should think about taking yourself and maybe your team along to hear Patrick, because it's all about creating the right culture within your team, within the business. And I think that's a fairly important thing nowadays, particularly in light of the Royal Commission. So, Napoleon Purtis, what's happened? You know, we've appointed a voluntary administrator and essentially um, that just allows the business to have a breather and for the administrator to be able to look at all aspects of the business and see exactly where there's costs, where there's income, and to actually, and they have two basic responsibilities. One is to creditors, and one is to keep the business going and making sure that they restructure it in a way that the business survives. Those are the two objectives in the Corporations Act that the administrator has. Mm. So um, with uh, the administrator coming in, one of the first decisions was, you know, at this at this time frame, you, from a lot of retail you know, peers, but, you know, you hear it all the time, but I can tell you as a fact, the landlords just have not made the adjustments that they've needed to make in this country to be able to accommodate, you know, the retailers because there's enormous costs with, you know, running the stores as retail has taken headwinds mm. and continues to take headwinds. I mean, you saw all the news last week in relation to the major department stores, in particular one where the CEO had to, you know, was left. And, yeah. you know, and, and so that that's just, that's, and it's not just, people think it's online and online is, 
still a small percentage in Australia of the total retail. There are retail headwinds because there are macro and microeconomic conditions affecting the consumer that comes from everything from like, you know, energy costs to, you know, our interest only loans that are now coming due with principal. So there's less disposable income. There, there's still people in malls, but, you know, the, the traffic is down. So those rentals are, are enormous. The other thing, of course, is that with our bank, and I do have to say that, you know, ANZ have been working with us and we, you know, we, we actually um, are working with them to, to, to see this as a total success story for, for banks, especially in this period when you see CEOs resigning. I mean, I had a personal note from Shane Elliott, you know, um, mm. the CEO of ANZ, where he responded to an email of mine. And I actually found that even though some of the frontline people may not have understood things along the way, he definitely has. And, you know, we're, we're very grateful for the support that ANZ have actually been given through this process. Okay. Um, and that's actually... That's actually that's actually really critical for me to say because there's been a lot of bank bashing and look uh, the front line could have been a bit better along the way you know over the last mm. couple of years but you know the 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 want and the desire you know from management there to see and maintain national iconic Australian brands had had was really obvious when Shane Elliott returned you know my email almost immediately and um and and really gave it attention and that for me speaks volume in relation to our bank because I know. There's peers of mine, you know, in, in retail out there that have had a terrible experiences with the other three banks. And I feel, mm. you know, when you go into our stores, you can see the ANZ FPOS, so you know who we bank with. And I really wanted to make a point of that because um, that's actually that's actually important. But the other okay. thing, of course, is that, you know, with 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 all the landlord issues, is just this whole idea of how you need to restructure the business so it's an online first business as well yeah. you know so um and and, and omni-channel and you know there are even obstacles with the landlords in relation to that like you know there are malls in the states when i was living there where basically you can order and then you pick up in, in store and there's no kind of restrictions as to like you know the parking the you're only allowed these hours you can't pull off the floor there's this they have all these like antiquated like medieval sort of rules that you know re you know regulate you even further trying to do business whereas at least on that front the americans have had to learn to kind of be more liberal about it you know mm. like for example you can't have people stand at your lease line well why not why can't we be greeting people as people are coming through the malls to say hello welcome you know i've got this sample for you you know and it's and it's an exciting thing for the customer to feel as part of the community which always used to happen when i was younger okay and, okay yeah, but napoleon so you this is what you're saying the the landlords aren't permitting this kind of thing is that what you're saying i'm saying the landlords are not permitting this kind of thing and the landlords with their lease expectations yeah. and with their expectations of rentals going up and with their expectations that if you need to make adjustments in your network plan, yeah. they're not allowing it or they're being very inflexible or it's extremely okay. expensive. Businesses okay. cannot continue. All right, let me ask you a couple of questions. Now, the Polyam Purtis Group, is that what's gone into VA, Voluntary Administration, or a part of the Polyam Purtis Group? The Napoleon Purtis Cosmetics Trading Business has mm. gone into voluntary administration. But other aspects of your business empire is is not in the same kind of predicament. No, I mean, there, there, there's entities where there's some IP and things like that that are not, no. And mm. uh, and also, you know, our overseas um, our overseas arm is not. And uh, I personally am not. That's the other thing that I think is totally misleading in the public. Like, this is not this is not me. Like yes, the name is a name brand, but ultimately it is a breast 
that we can take with the administrator to restructure a business for those two points, to okay. look after creditors and look after restructuring the business to go forward. Okay. Now, you've got how many stores? I've got two numbers. I've got a 56 number and a 76. Uh, how many stores do you have and how many are closing? Well, we've closed 28 stores. Um, and there's now 27 stores that were available. There were 77, but over the period of getting to a VA, we were closing them, but it just became extremely expensive to do it without um, having um, some air to breathe and restructure okay. properly. Now, the stores that are open, are they open because, A, the foot traffic's good enough in the area, the rents are, are payable, and, and as individual entities, they're profitable? The stores that are open are profitable stores, and they're being assessed daily, as you can imagine, at the moment. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and 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 they're very very strong stores, and they're actually legacy classic stores as well. You know, yeah. they're not kind of where, you know, malls are opening up and doing sweetheart deals to kind of lure you in. Like yeah. so, uh, the legacy stores in Perth are open and are profitable and are doing really well, and we've had. Very, very good sales. You know, the first three days were absolutely phenomenal. And then it's traded. To give you an idea, a week into the store closures, the same revenue was achieved with like half the stores, almost half the stores as was the week before. Okay. And that's an indication of exactly what a restructure can allow, mm. you know, to make sure that then we have profit to look after our creditors, our staff, and of course, you know, to restructure the business. Okay. Now, one of the stories I read said that you've been – put under pressure by the arrival of two new outlets, Sephora and Mecca. Tell, tell us what that, these two, are they, are they they're standalone stores, are they, that have made life harder for you? You know, there's kind of a bit of, there's kind of a bit of rubbish in that and yeah. kind of, there's kind of a bit of truth. Let me clarify. You know, both of those groups are multi-brand retailers that carry over 80 brands in there. They have affected Meyer and David Jones and Priceline Chemist Warehouse much more than they've affected an individual specialty retailer like me. Yeah. You know, has the market, has that meant that, you know, in some areas, you know, with lower foot traffic in malls that they've also, we've had to contend with as well? Yes, but it's not, that's not the reason. And on that note, Sephora's all of about, I think, 15 doors. It's like mm. hardly anything in Australia at the moment. And whether that survives long term will be to be seen. Mecca has been in the market for 26 years and Mecca has been building her brand portfolio over 26 years. So it's not like Mecca's been this new entry. Everything's, everyone thinks it's this new entry. She's expanded part of her network footprint, but that's really taken a hit. If you look, you know, David Jones have lost 700 million. You know what I mean? Like Maya announced like 800 million last year and they've been changing CEOs. Like I think, you know, there's been five for the over four years in both of those retailers. So it's affected them and it's affected, you know, the large you know, cosmetics floors that have multi-brand retailing. We are not a multi-brand retailing. We are a specialty store retailer with very specific issues. Okay, Napoleon, um, do you have some potential buyers out there? And and would the buyers maintain the stores and maybe over time grow the stores? We absolutely have potential interest at the moment, and I have to be very careful mm. because the administrator is in control of this process. We absolutely have our interest. Um, and the, our, the the interest and data room opened up on Friday, um, and I can and you know the administrator has vision to be able to see what's happening. And there's been a lot of activity, and we know that because even before this process, there was activity. Uh, you know, we've been looking to actually uh, sell the brand and invest from an investment point of view for over an 18 month period. So that's actually really strong. And not only have 
the, the, the key sort of first players indicated they intend on maintaining the stores, but they intend on reformatting them and increasing the networks, the network print. But to give you an idea what that means, you know, Peter, is it's, for example, let's just take a center like Parramatta. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been in Parramatta, and I'm a Parramatta boy from way back, you know, and Parramatta Eels and everything, right? That's where I was brought up. Everything. So basically that store, you know, um, closed, but we actually have had a makeup bar for years. So in time, once we move out through this process, there's been a commitment by the interested parties to go back into Parramatta, mm. to go back to a makeup bar that doesn't have 150 square meters just sitting there for a single brand mm. because you don't need that anymore. So that's actually been very exciting and very encouraging from my point of view. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there's been um, enormous interest because some players that are interested, are, I believe, are logistical players as well, in, in making more efficient the whole back end. You know, the whole way that e-commerce works from a back-end perspective to make that more omni and more efficient, but also the warehousing, make that more efficient, create more digital technology within that. You know, because over 26 years, I mean, I I wasn't born knowing how to run a warehouse business. Mm. So there are things that, you know, can be made more efficient. And those sort of investments are very exciting. And that's where I see a lot of white light. Okay. How is is the online business up for sale along with the stores? Yes, absolutely. The online business is part of the whole, you know, retail retail network of Napoleon Purtis. Is your international part of Napoleon Purtis because you've, um, in recent years, located to Athens with the aspiration to sell into the Middle East? Is that Middle East part of the business up for sale as well? So the they're all they're all um, sister and daughter companies of the parent company in Australia. Mm. So that would actually come. They they would actually be owned but of course they have different values within themselves so they would be owned or invested in as part of the group yes they're not individual entities okay so so a buyer potentially could end up buying your local stores and your international businesses as well of course and the, the big the great thing and this is where a lot of you know information to the public is great for them to have is the great thing is that the international distribution especially in the usa as you know sustained losses in america you can use those losses to re-establish distribution mm. and actually use them effectively so it doesn't take drain on the australian parent company so that of course is very attractive to investors in private equity and private equity mm, okay so we are out of time now mate but what is your best guess of what's going to happen down the down the pike. Um, my my best vision and and uh, and plan is that the business will be invested in. Um, the the investment partner will take a share in the business and um, either option or total or you know a share whether it's controlling or not doesn't really matter. I'm not selfish like that at this point in time. I want the brand to live another hundred years. Yeah. And the brand will then have reinvestment to not only look at our, our network plan with stores, our e-commerce efficiencies across all areas of the business, but more importantly to fund also the international you know, availability that's there mm. um, and to take advantage of that so that the brand you know, repositions in a very efficient way and lives another 100 years globally. Okay, and whoever buys will also get access to your support for the brand going forward as well? 
I have absolutely stated publicly that I am not bored of my business. I love retail. I love being a makeup artist. I love cosmetics. I love developing everything from the tiny little product right through to the strategy. And it's been, I've been doing it for 26 years. And I have absolutely, because that's one of the things that they ask immediately, that I am absolutely committed to staying on with this and seeing it right through um, into the next levels of, of, of re-establishment and, and reinvestment. All right, Napoleon, thanks for joining us. And best of luck, mate. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. And always remember that when we talk about a Switzer home loan being 3.89%, that's our advertised rate and it's also a comparison rate. Whenever you go for a loan, make sure you ask your lender what is the comparison rate because often there are sneaky little fees and charges which really makes a difference to the real interest rate that you pay. Well, the Royal Commission headed up by Justice Hayne really shocked the mortgage broking industry and his recommendations could really change mortgage broking forever. Trailing commissions was the focus and he wanted to get rid of them. He wanted us as consumers to pay for the services with mortgage brokers. Now, I'm talking to the Executive Director of Connective, which is the biggest group of mortgage brokers in Australia. And uh, Mark Heron, uh, who is the chief, um, well, the executive director of Connective, is coming up on the program. In fact, he'll be here in a moment. And we'll talk to him about the implications. I really do think Labor and the government will tweak these recommendations. And I think you might agree with me when you hear why I have to ask Mark and the answers he gives us. Mark Heron, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Peter. All right, Mark, um, have you been able to get the ear of both government and Labor politicians since Justice Hayne came up with this very unusual request to basically make mortgage brokers' lives very, very difficult? Uh, look, yes, the industry is going through the motions of that uh, as we speak, um, and um, there seems to be uh, interest on both sides of the major parties to have a bit more engagement with the industry uh, to understand fully uh, the implications of some of those recommendations from the Royal Commission. Were you surprised when Justice Haynes said that you guys are getting money for nothing? Very surprised. Well, sorry, I should explain this a bit better. Uh, not surprised given the commentary and the discussions through the Royal Commission process um, more surprised about those discussions and how it was discussed through the Royal Commission process. And uh, and then as the final round of hearings, when um, a number of bank uh, CEOs did outline uh, some more, in more detail uh, what brokers do for trial commissions, uh, etc., uh, that that was not taken into consideration. It seemed to be only... He seemed to only want to consider... The, the views of uh, Matt Common from CBA in that respect. So, so tell me, uh, what is Matt's view? Uh, that uh, uh, when asked the question by Mr. Hayne, "What do brokers do 
the trial commission? He said, uh, very little. Um, Mr. Haynes said, what, by that do you mean uh, nothing at all? And there was sort of a, a general nodding of consensus. Now, that also concerned me because I'm sure Mr. Haynes is fully aware of what uh, brokers do. Um, being a bank that bought a very large mortgage broking business, you would hope that he had a better understanding of those things. Um, but certainly um, a business that, you know, uses brokers to bring in 36% of their home loans, um, I'm sure there's a very good understanding of what um, mortgage brokers do. Okay. A lot of people don't understand the trailing commission. So can you just put into historical mm. context how the relationship between mortgage brokers and banks developed? Because, you know, there are there are people I know who tell me, well, um, the trail was something the banks introduced. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, absolutely. It, and it was introduced um, uh, quite some time ago and it really came out of the banks. What, instead of paying brokers the uh, upfront fee and the, you know, the semi of sort of 1 to 1.2%, the banks saw more commercial value in taking half of that payment, for, as an example, and say, so we'll, we'll pay you that in the terms of this structure of this trial and commission of roughly 0.15 over uh, on an annualised basis that we'll pay it out uh, each month here. Um, but here are some conditions by which you'll get that. I.e., the loan can't be in arrears, so it still has to be a good loan, performing loan. And secondly, the, the loan still has to be with the bank. So what it effectively started to create was also some um, focus on the brokers in terms of the, the duty of care to customer. Um, so in a backhanded way, it, it made brokers more conscientious of making sure they put a client to a bank where they could afford the loan and that the bank and the product was the most that was suitable for what they wanted. Otherwise, the customers would refinance and go somewhere else and the broker would lose you know, almost half of their income potentially. So that's where it came from in that respect. Um, and uh, you know, that's sort of where, where it has got to to this point. Um, so uh, it's a fee paid by the banks to brokers for the services they provide. It's not a fee paid by the customer. Now, some might argue, and I'll elaborate a bit more on this, Peter, that brokers are paying for it because they're paying for it in the interest rate. Well, if that was the case, then why is it that when you go to a broker, you're getting the same rate as what you would get through a bank branch? Um, and some would argue, in fact, you get a better rate because a broker will negotiate. Mm. It's not in the bank's best interest to negotiate their interest rates down to a customer, is it? You wouldn't have thought so. All right, now, there's accusations... Uh, which I was quite surprised when I read it, but accusations by someone who should know better that, that brokers have been responsible for m allowing people to borrow too much and they're at the core of the rise in the ratio of household de um, uh, debt to income. Have you seen that accusation, Mark? And if so, what's your reaction to that? Well, I haven't seen it, but no... Immediate reaction is that um, uh, the banks are the ones that set the policy and the lending policy and the lending criteria. Mm. No broker approves the loan. The bank approves the loan. Uh, the banks do a lot of due diligence and checking on the brokers' information they provide. Brokers must provide um, a significant amount of documentation to support the information provided in the application, and that information 
um, in majority cases is, is verified by the banks as well to make sure it's, it's accurate. Now, in doing that process, if the customer can still afford the loan, um, and if that is what is pushing uh, this all up, then clearly it's more of an indication of bank uh, lending policies and standards than it is of mortgage brokers. Okay, and what about there's this thing called HEM, Household Expenditure, what's the M, method is it? or, or Yeah, measurement. Measurement, measurement. And the, yeah, the suggestion yeah. is that with HEM, uh, banks have sort of turned a blind eye to exaggerated or, or maybe lower than what really is the level of expenditure in a household when they're going for a loan. How, how bad has that been? And... I would have thought once again it would be a, a bank issue rather than a broker's issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it is very much a bank issue. It's them. They are the one that set the HEM structure, the HEM model. So there's a there's a HEM reference which is determined um, uh, from across sort of a, a generalistic one from the industry, and then it's up to the banks to determine what on HEM plus what amount they want to use in terms of their modelling. To determine what someone's household expenditure is. Now, this I think, to some extent, this has been an issue for um, for, for borrowers, for banks, um, in that there was too much reliance and perhaps not enough buffering around that hem that was done. Now, that all changed well over 12 months ago now, when um, you know through ASIC's further direction and focus, the, it was you know they said, well, look, hems. While it's there as its reference tool, it is not the only tool. What we want is um, banks and brokers to collect all of the customer's expense information uh, and reconcile that and work it out from directly from um, uh, getting gathering that information from the customer. Now, you can ask the customer, but the next stage is that uh, banks and brokers should be verifying. All right, Mark, one thing that I found when I was interviewing um, a mortgage broker uh, a day after the Hain recommendations were, were put forward, he said, really, if this goes through, the value of my business really goes down to, to zero if I can't you know, sell the trail. So is trail critically important to the value of a mortgage broker's business? Yeah, look, it is the primary asset. Um, so uh, it, it is a key asset and there's a lot of value in terms of that, that trail book. Um, and obviously, once trial stops being paid from one July for new business, you know it's only a matter of time before that existing loan portfolios uh, comes off because you have a couple of aspects there. First of all, you have the normal runoff, which happens through people paying off their loans, uh, but then you've got uh, that trial stopping as people would refinance those loans to, a, to another product. Um, right. Okay. But if the industry becomes based on upfront only, a business would still have value, but it would be just, in a sense, harder to sell to another mortgage broker because you'd be selling your goodwill, which you're not quite sure yeah. whether it would stay with that particular business when the actual person who's identified with the business leaves. That's exactly right. It becomes like, yeah, another small business, where, but with no technical assets except for that goodwill, except for that customer base. Mm. And, and and if it's been, it's a small business, you know, with a broker sort of proprietor writing all the loans, the customers have got that relationship with him to then 
continue that with a, a future business um, is less predictable, so therefore of less value. All right. Now, it seems to me also the people who are cheering on the sidelines for the, the changes proposed for mortgage brokers seem to have forget, forgotten the role of mortgage brokers in actually bringing interest rates down for average Australians. And I'm thinking of the likes of, you know, the history of John Simon, Aussie Home Loans, Mark Burris and Wizard and Rams and all those sorts of companies. Mm. Do you think if, if mortgage brokers become extinct, banks will continue to offer competitive interest rates? Well, no, they won't be under as much pressure to offer competitive interest rates. Um, you know, if, it, if there is a lack of mortgage brokers, more people forced to go back to a bank branch, um, possibly a mobile lender. And the, the four big banks stand to uh, win the most from that, with CBA standing to win the, the largest significant uh, move back to that because of their branch footprint. And that's once they have that and they've got majority of that and they, they know that there's not mortgage brokers out there agitating and running around with a, a Me Bank or an ING Bank or a Macquarie Bank and a Teachers Mutual Bank to, uh, to uh, provide to a customer as an alternative, um, yeah, you'll just start to see those rates creep up again, just like we saw them creep down. So, yeah, there was definitely that immediate impact within, within a fairly short period of time, Aussie and Wizard, um, um, Resi, others coming in. But now, as that dissipated through the GFC, we've actually seen, even though we don't have those big businesses, and you know, Aussie is now a mortgage broker selling lots of different banks' loans, including Commonwealth banks, you're starting to see the pressures now really through the large panels of lenders that brokers have and are able to, to, to support um, with their lending activities. But that's going to become very hard when um, you've got to go to the customer and ask them to pay for that service. And they can say, well, I can get it free in the bank. Why would I pay you? So small lenders, smaller banks um, and other lenders, how would they be affected if mortgage brokers uh – yeah, less important to the overall supply of, of loans? Well, I think it was identified. We identified it through our um, submission in terms of the interim Royal Commission report, and it was identified, I think, maybe through ASIC and Treasury. I'm pretty sure it was ASIC looking at the REM review that without mortgage brokers, all of those small banks would have to open over 100 branches each on average to bring in the same level of business that they're currently bringing in through mortgage brokers. So the cost implication on them on building all of these um, bricks and one, and, and the time it would take to do that, hire the staff, get these things up and running. By that stage, you know the major banks have got their market shares back, mm. and the, that was reflected through the share price. Day exactly, one. exactly. So, the, so Mark, the, are the small lenders, you know, um, locking arms with the mortgage broking groups to say to both government and to Labor, be very careful about accepting this recommendation. Yes, they are, well and truly. They'll become, I think, more um, vocal uh, as time goes by, I think, as they get over the shock of what's happening and try to look through it. But there's been already been a number have come out uh, very much in support of brokers. And, you know, even today from uh, one of the major banks, um, got an email which very much supported broker as well and, um, and the importance of broker and, you know, indicating that, um, you know, the government opposition both need to be very cautious about implementing those recommendations. Yep. Now, i got one um, tweeter, and of course, everyone on the Twitter sphere are experts, Mark, as you would probably yeah. know. He said, I oh, don't worry about mortgage brokers because 
you know, anyone can get a low interest rate loan um, online nowadays. What would you say to someone like that who just believes that the, the future is going to be banks going to, to branches or online? Look, the, the, what brokers provide is more than just access to a lower interest rate. It's actually access to a whole range of funders that meet different and very complex uh, borrowing scenarios. Not everyone uh, is a public servant on a PAYG salary um, with fairly simple uh, expense explanations and, and with the one key asset, two, two key assets, a super and their, their house and their home. You know, that's very simple to do those loans and um, and don't take too much time at all. But those sort of loans uh, are rare. Most loans are very complex and require a lot of detailed thinking and brokers to understand bank policies. Whereas that person could say, well, look, no worries, I'll do that myself. Well, you'll go from bank to bank to bank, you'll get rejected here and maybe over here and come back and give us this some more information over here. And in the meantime, all those inquiries in your credit file, you've just destroyed your credit profile and the banks will turn around and say, well, look, um, we don't understand. It looks like you've been rejected by all these other banks. Uh, we're not keen to give you a loan either because we're concerned that there might be more to it. Okay, Mark, is there a good question I haven't asked you that I should have at this point in time? Uh, no, you've done what you do very well, Peter, with your insightful journalistic uh, talent. So uh, uh, all good from my perspective. Okay, Mark. Well, Mark Harron. And Mark, nowadays, what are you? Are you the CEO or MD or chair? What are you of of your... Uh, exec- executive Director of Connective, um, where the country's largest aggregator of mortgage broken businesses. I knew you have you, you know exactly who you are and what you do. Mate, as always, mm. great talking to you. Thanks, Peter. Likewise. And now, a word from our sponsors. Okay, in this case, I am the sponsor because I really want to plug something that we're doing in the future. It's called the Switzer Investor Strategy Day. We're going to Sydney on Tuesday the 30th of April, Melbourne, Tuesday the 7th of May, and Brisbane um, on Wednesday 8th of May. And these are the days when you get a chance to turn up and hear some of the best fund managers in the country I'll be there making presentations about what I think is going to happen to stocks this year. Paul Rickard will be there as well. And it's a great opportunity for not only to listen to some of the best fund managers in the country that will give you some investment ideas, a chance for you to even consider some of the funds that they represent, but also a chance for you to quiz these people, including myself, about investments in 2019. So that's the Switzer Investment Strategy Day. And if you go to switzer.com.au, I'm sure you'll find some information about those days as well. Let me remind you, Sydney... 30th of April, Melbourne, 7th of May, Brisbane, 8th of May. Well, one of the most interesting businesses I've had a lot to do with in my time is a business called Growth Faculty. It was started by a lady by the name of Karen Beatty, and she brings out some of the best speakers and business thinkers in the world. And she's got a very interesting guest coming to Australia in March. Karen, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks, Pete, for having me. Okay, before we start talking about, I hope my pronunciation is right, Patrick Lencioni. How's that? Lencioni, very close. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, for an Australian, <laughs> not too foul. Now, let's go and talk about you first of all, because you've got a great business. It's called The Growth Faculty. What do you do? 
Well, um, we bring out, as you mentioned in the intro, the um, you know the world's best business authors, thinkers, and CEOs um, to Australia, New Zealand. And what we do is create the opportunity for businesses and teams here to access you know the latest thinking and leadership, strategy, innovation, you know all the foundations for growing business. Mm. So we generally run those through live events, either half day or full day programs. So how have you grown the business? Because I knew you when you were small, and even when you were small, you were taking risks. You were bringing out you know very important people, but you really um, sort of improve your business processes, but how have you done it? Um, I guess really, um, firstly and foremostly, is, is our rela- strong relationships with speakers and, and our long-standing relationships. Because if we don't get the speakers to agree to come out to Australia, we really don't have a business. And the um, second um, strong pillar is really we've got some um, strong partnerships with um, business associations who really want to add value to their membership base and see primarily their SME kind of base get access to the world's best thinking. So those are really the true strongest ways we've found, okay. well, you know, grown well, business. Well, some people would be just fascinated how, and I know you, Karen, like you, you're not, you're hardly Max Marx and you're not a pushy, and Max is a mate of mine, but, you know, Max is pushy. He could go and actually hogtail Arnold Schwarzenegger to come out here, but you are more a diminutive, gracious, decent human being. Not that Max is not, but you are. How do you get to you know, attract quality speakers and business thinkers from you know from Australia and just go over to these um, the America America and the UK and get these people to come here it's persistence uh, Peter, really, um, I've been told no 98% of the time. Yep. And um, a lot of these speakers, people think I just pick up the phone and go, hey, you know, we, we need you to come out to Australia and they're on the next plane. But really, it takes uh, trust, right? So I spent a lot of years building trust um, and building the relationship and building the, I guess, you know, the business case for them to come out. They're very busy in the US, um, market's massive over there. So to really convince them is they've got to see the ROI in it. You know, so, um, yeah, it, t- it takes sometimes, you know, um, my, you know, my best claim to fame was Jim Collins. It took 10 years to get Jim Collins out here because when mm. I started the business back in 2003, you know, with Michael Gerber, someone asked me, who's the one speaker you would love to bring out? And I said at the time it would be Jim Collins. And it only took me 10 years, but mm. I eventually did it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and when you think about it, in the old days, and as I, there was a distance phobia. You know, the USA to Australia seems so far. Is that still... Uh, an issue that you've got to talk through? Absolutely. Um, You know, Australia not only is a small market, but geographically, um, the perception from over in the US is that we are miles away. And so um, it really takes a lot for them to come out. So it's not just to come and do one or two events. It takes a whole week, 10 days out of their schedule. And the perception is we are miles away from everything. It only takes them six hours to get across to Europe, um, but the 14 hours is Mm. a real barrier. Yes. Okay, so tell us about Patrick Lencioni. Now, I know I mispronounced it, but that's the way I'm going to do it. I know he's the author of a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. But tell us how you got to learn about him and then how did you twist his arm to come here? Well, again, uh, yes, I've been um, liaising with Pat's team for over six years. And, um, you know, he's you know one of the top best-selling authors um, and his whole thing's on team performance. Um, and yes, most people know about five dysfunctions of a team and also um, the advantage. Mm-hmm. So um, Pat was ready um, to come to Australia. He's sold millions of copies and his company, The Table Group, consults to 78 of the 
Fortune 100 companies. And, you know, really his message is quite timely, you know, especially with the recent findings of the Royal Commission, um, stating the main problem was, you know, distinct lack of accountability on culture. And that's exactly what, you know, Patrick talks to, you know, his his message is around that competitive advantage and business growth opportunities rely on a healthy culture. And he's got a very strong and clear framework for achieving that culture. Um, So, um, you know, it just turned out to be um, quite timely. For those people who don't know Patrick all that well, what's his history? What, What do you think explains why he's so insightful when it comes to teams? Well, um, I guess Patrick's done a lot of research um, and he's worked in management consultants. And I guess his experience over the years in working with the Fortune 500, it kind of, you know, the the experience goes both ways. So he's managed to gather a lot of um, intel from all his experience and built out a framework. And I think that's what people really like is this this framework and the practical application. Um, And culture seems to be just quite theoretical. You know, it's like, how do we build this culture? And everyone's talking about culture these days. And he's got a very strong um, framework with regards to that. So the building blocks around it where he says, if you don't have trust, you can't move to the next level. Healthy conflict is really positive. Commitment, accountability, which is where a lot of companies kind of fall down on a lot of leaders with their teams and then um, driving results. So, um, you know, with his 11 million copies that he sold around the world, um, you know, he's a very, very popular and one of the top five most sought-after speakers throughout the U.S. Yeah, without a doubt, 11 million. That's a nice uh, nice sale. Uh, now, yes. uh, so tell us about the conference. Um, when is it on? Uh, how many venues will he be speaking at? Sure. Peter, as you're aware, we run the National Growth Summit every year. We've been running it for the past 12 years. So we run it in March every year. So Pat's going to be here for the 13th and the 15th in Sydney and Melbourne, respectively. We do Mm -hmm. two cities. He's headlining and we've got two other speakers that are joining him. Whitney Johnson, um, who's written a uh, book called The Build an A-Team, and um, Kevin Lawrence, who's a coach for high-performing CEOs. Um, So Mm -hmm. that's the schedule. Okay. So um, if people want to know more, what's the website they should go to? Thegrowthfaculty.com. Okay, now let's be really gross. People would, would want to know what's it going to what's it going to cost to to go along and listen to these great speakers. Oh, it's uh, very reasonable. You can um, get tickets for eight hundred and ninety five dollars. And and does it come with per person? Does it does it come with um, workbooks and all that sort of stuff, or do we just come with our own pen and paper? Uh, no, you get workbooks and you get fed as well. So we've got full catering and. Um, yeah, and three um, three amazing speakers. Uh, so it's a full day program, six and a half hours of content, basically directly from the author. Okay. I mean, it's such great value. Okay, and I guess if you're running a business, it, it's possibly tax deductible. I know you're not going to give advice on that, but I would have thought a business pursuing that kind of productivity enhancing activity would possibly be tax deductible. It absolutely is. And we got, we got lots of companies use this opportunity to bring their team. So we have lots of, you know, bringing groups of 10 and 20. Our largest booking is a team of 50 because some leaders see that as an opportunity, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for their whole team to hear directly from this author. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's, we, um, we offer really good discounts on group bookings as well to okay. provide that opportunity for business leaders here. Karen Watkins from the Growth Faculty, thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. That's Karen Beatty of the Growth Faculty, and I recommend you think about going along to see Patrick because I'm sure he'll be very insightful like many of the people she's brought out over the years. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. I look forward to talking to you next week.